Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Healthy Perspectives podcast. Thanks for joining us for today's journey, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, hello. All right, thanks for joining me. I'm going to be probably a bit intense today because I am addressing something that absolutely drove me bonkers. Like as a mental health professional, one of the things that absolutely can drive me bonkers is uh, when people misrepresent my profession. Uh, I take what I do very, very seriously. I believe that what I do is important. I believe that I was made to be a healer and when people misrepresent it, it sheds a light on my profession in a way uh, that honestly, it's going to prevent people from trusting uh, me or, or people that I know who are really trying to do good work. And that's just not okay. So <clears throat> with that, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to get rolling. On June 8th, there was a, uh, an upload of a podcast called The Daily. It's at a, the New York Times puts this on and it is incredibly absurd. Uh, I, this is, I listen to left-leaning and right-leaning podcasts. I read left-leaning and right-leaning books. Uh, and I do that because I want to be informed and not naive and stupid. Um, but this one, this one just went too far. They went way too far. I'm going to explain. First, the title of it. Most violence is not caused by mental illness. Um, I guess it depends on how we're looking at violence. If, if we're talking about car accidents um, that are accidents, but they're violent, then yeah, maybe that's right. Uh, but intentional, uh, proactive uh, going out there and trying to attack another person, I would suggest it's almost all mental illness. Now, we're going to get into semantics. Well, mental health and mental illness might be different. If we're not mentally healthy, then what are we? We're not well, so it would fall in the category of illness. There is something going on, whether it's simple as anger management and emotional regulation issues, or as extreme as uh, schizophrenia, schizoid personality, uh, narcissism, and the like. The question of this podcast was posed. Here it is, as written, and this is, I found this out after the fact, but it got me fired up because it is not the same as what is stated within the podcast. If you read their statement and you listen to their podcast, they're totally different. The incongruence in this absolutely is annoying because look, as a mental health person, one of the things that we try to do, and we're not perfect either, what we try to do is be congruent. What we say should be reflected in our behaviors. Our behaviors should reflect what we say and believe. It doesn't mean we get it right all the time, but we should be making an effort to be congruent. Well, the question they posed in writing was this, how can the mental health system stop gun violence when mental illness is so rarely the cause of it? That's what was written. What was stated is, how can the mental health system stop a shooting when most shooters aren't mentally ill? I don't know about you, but I can see some glaring problems with those two separate points of view. Those are not even the same question. All right, I'm going to show you what it takes over the next 
I don't know, maybe 20, 30 minutes, I'm going to show you what it takes to listen and be thoughtful about something that's being told to you. Whether you're left or right, I could care less. What I care about is that you are thinking for yourself because the way that they spun this is it, it's, it's wrong. It's just flat out not okay. We cannot allow people to spin us in this way. And so I am purposely going out of my way to say this is unacceptable behavior. We cannot accept this. The summary of this podcast that they put together is that acute crisis care for, it's about acute crisis care for a 21-year-old who had signs and symptoms of impending violence. That means this person showed an aptitude to be violent and it was imminent. It was something that was right on the threshold of a possibility. Now, look, we think things all the time. We can talk about robbing a bank. It doesn't mean we're going to rob the bank. Well, true. But when we take steps in our life to put the plan together, then it becomes criminal or it becomes a problem. In this case, a mental health issue. The police act were activated and they decided no law had been broken yet. So they turned the 21-year-old over to the mental health unit. That makes sense. All of this stuff I'm tracking sounds good. Remember, I listened to this thing the first time just because I wanted to hear it. And I, I started getting fired up pretty, you know, pretty much like five minutes in or thereabouts. I was like, well, I, I allow for some space for errors. Like people make mistakes. Um, and so I was just trying to listen and just understand how they could say most violence is not caused by mental illness. Just trying to see that point of view. Once they activated the mental health folks, which they're event, they're it's, they're supposedly interviewing um, a doctor, uh, which most likely it's a psychiatric doctor because it's in a hospital, which means you know a PsyD, a doctorate in 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 psychiatry or something of that nature. Um, her name was Doctor Barnhorst, uh, and. This is her introduction and the way that she decided to talk about my profession of mental health, which clearly she does not subscribe to mental health, uh, clinical work, uh, outpatient care, inpatient care. She subscribes to the medical model, which I will prove as we go. At around the five minute mark, she says, quote, I always build a picture in my mind of what people are going to be like before I meet them. And as a mental health professional, that was my first significant red flag. I started to lose it a little bit right there because in mental health, being open to understanding and providing empathy to the individual is a key element. If I'm already prejudging, I'm already causing myself an obstacle to overcome. That's bad practice. That's just bad practice. Like I may ask a client to tell me some stuff about them and they send me some paperwork and I, I take a look at what they have said about themselves, but I'm not building it up in my mind that, oh, they're going to be six foot two and they're going to be very attractive and like, uh, what? No, I'm not building a picture in my mind of what people are going to be like behaviorally, because I have to remain open-minded. So right there was my first red flag. I'm going, mm, 
home, she's she's already starting off on the wrong foot, in my opinion. But again, leave some room for uh, some some mistakes, right? Maybe she didn't mean that she was framing this person and had an expectation already. Maybe she didn't really mean that. So we move on. She proceeds to highlight extremes that she expected to see because of the, the, the formulation she was already creating in her mind. She expected to see somebody who was impulsive, grandiose, manic, talking really fast. And then she went on to say she didn't see any of these. Let's be real. If those are the criteria of a mass shooter, then we should identify every single one of them. It should be very easy. But mental health, mental illness is not that simple. There are too many variables for it to be that simple. So I'm starting to lose it a little bit more at this point. I'm going, oh my gosh, is she really that narrow in her view of what mental illness actually is? Because I got a DSM right here. I brought it because I'm going to be referring to it in here in a little bit. It's almost 950 pages, no, it's a thousand pages. It's right around that mark. Um, it, and it, it highlights how complex each diagnosis is, every single one of them. So, okay, we move on. I'm going, okay. Um, she states, he looked, which was repeated over and over. He looked, he looked, he looked. She repeated it multiple times. What does mental illness have to look like? If, if, if we're going with what she stated, it's impulsivity, grandiose, manic, talking fast. If we're going by appearance, what it literally looked like um, let me introduce you to a, a, a guy named Ted Bundy, who was noted for his charisma and being relatively handsome. So is that what mental health or mental illness looks like, Ted Bundy? Well, then we have got a lot of work to do because we, we clearly are not capturing mental illness well. Like, I know I'm being a little bit sarcastic here, but the truth is this is so narrow and I'm going to put this, uh, this podcast that they had, I'm going to put the link right in my podcast because I want you to be able to get to it. I want you to listen to it and I want you to, to understand how ridiculous this is. All right. So around five minutes and 58 seconds, I started tracking time the second time through around five minutes and 58 seconds. She says, quote, I think he was a little sullen and depressed. This was super frustrating to me. Sullen, depressed? So there was clearly an, an affect notice. She noticed the affect was off. That is a clear indicator that there is something going on with his mental illness or mental health. He's clearly having some challenges that need to be addressed. Can't that be a mental illness? Oh, let me introduce you to depression. Anybody, anybody out there ever experienced de depression? Uh, flatter affect, sullen. She used the word depressed. Is that not a mental health issue? Is that not a mental health illness? Sometimes we grieve for a while and the grieving falls into a depressed state. We can't get out of it. We get stuck. It, at what point does it become a mental illness? Criteria for involuntary commitment was her next big thing. She goes into the criteria. She says three things, a danger to the self, 
danger to someone else, or gravely disabled, which she goes on to clarify. I'm like, okay, well, that's good. Because we have autonomy, non-maleficence, beneficence, justice, fidelity, veracity, which are the ethical principles that say we should not take away somebody's autonomy unless there's some potential for extreme uh, danger. Okay, got it. Great. So that's good. And those are made difficult on purpose so that we don't just, as mental health professionals, just have people committed uh, just willy-nilly. We can't do that. We, we actually made that mistake. If you look back in history, back into the 60s, the 70s, there were mental health hospitals all over the country because we were just locking people up if we thought they were dangerous. Now, we can't do that. We can't do that. People have their rights to freedom, their rights to autonomy protected from people who don't know what they're doing, clearly. All right. So that was good. You know, they're, they're hard on purpose. Um, there is a fourth criteria that she leaves out. I don't care what her state says. Uh, every state can say what they say, but every single person who is admitted has to have a bed to sleep in. Now that might not seem like a criteria to you guys out there, but the reality is with mental health being what it is in our country right now, more often than not, when I have worked with the hospitals, they deny admittance because they don't have a place for the kid to sleep or they don't have a place for the adult to sleep. They just don't. And if they don't have a place for them to sleep, they cannot admit them. So what they're doing essentially is weighing risks of this person is less dangerous than somebody I have. So I'm going to not admit them. Well, that's a pretty risky game just by itself. So a fourth criteria is we have to have a bed for them. She didn't state anything about that, which somebody who works in acute care should know that that is absolutely 100% a criteria piece. They're going to say, well, we back up by having them held in the hospital under guard, uh, been there, done that, seen it. It doesn't work right? They end up getting released before they ever get admitted. It, it, I'd say that happens maybe uh, it, where I am. I'm in a smaller town. Um, I would say one out of five, one out of six times, they're just released because there's no bed. That doesn't mean they're not dangerous to themselves or to somebody else. They're just determined to have become safer over the day or two that they were held in the hospital and therefore to go through the process would be costly. And then they would be taking a bed away from somebody else who might need it more. Don't let them fool you. That is a reality. Around eight minutes and 10 seconds, she goes into background checks. Um, she says, quote, he'll still be able to purchase from private party sales from internet sales and from gun shows where in most states they don't do background checks. I lost my junk here. I'm sorry. Psy D, uh, you know, that's like, it's like me trying to say, well, I know how to do uh, oral surgery because I talked to a dentist once and they said, you don't pull the tooth out, you push the tooth in and you break the roots and then you pull it out. So, oh, I'm qualified because I, I talked to a dentist once. Look, what is her level of expertise to know about background checks? Because in every state, if they are a licensed dealer and they go to a gun show, they are required to do background checks by law in every state. 
I looked it up. That doesn't mean the private sales have to have background checks. So she's correct in that part of it, but she's not correct in the other part of it. Who makes up most of the, uh, the, the gun shows? Is it the private parties or is it the, uh, the, the dealers, the people who, who are licensed and have to do background checks? I don't know. Do your research. Find out. This is a good one for you to look up. So I then question her scope of practice. Is she stepping outside of her scope of practice to talk about some expertise? Now, I don't know. Maybe she is an expert on it. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. But the way that she stated it, um, if she is an expert on it, the way she stated it was misleading at best. It was misleading because it assumes that people can just go and buy from whoever they want at a gun show. And that is not true. You have to do background checks if you go to a dealer that's there. They are required by law to have a background check done. Um, which, by the way, I, I happen to know from experience, having gone to a gun show, I wonder if this lady has ever stepped into a gun show or is she just scared of guns? I don't know. I, I, I don't want to make an assumption, but she really ought to be more informed. Okay, so here we are. I'm about nine minutes and 30 seconds into this podcast that I'm listening to. And she says, about 4% of community violence is attributable to mental illness. I don't know if you heard me. I'm going to repeat it again. About 4% of community violence is attributable to mental illness. There's a term called community violence there. What? Where did this come from? This has nothing to do with shootings, possibly. Community violence? So I did my research. I looked it up. Um, I very quickly discovered that statistics... Are in fact like I had a I had a statistics professor in college who said this is not my quote this this was this was their quote they said stats are like bikinis what they show is revealing but what they cover is critical and I say that because we've just changed the conversation the conversation was about mental health it was about gun violence which. It's very clear at the beginning that that's what they're talking about. But then they shifted the conversation to community violence. 4% of what violence? Does this account for all mental health diagnoses? Or just the ones that... Uh, so uh, my note here is, I, I have I have diagnosed people with adjustment disorder because they had become violent. They were not diagnosed before. They became violent they then got a diagnosis. Does that count statistically in there? Are they counting the post-issue diagnosis? Because most of the time, I would suggest that when they become violent, they do probably have something going on that they're not able to regulate on their own. And so they're acting it out. If we don't speak it out, we act it out. If we don't play it out, we act it out. We have to release this tension and it's going to come in some form or another. We're seeing it all the time. So what's accounted for in that 4% that they're claiming, which then they go on and they say at nine minutes and 37 seconds, you say you have those time checks, 96% of the rest of the violence that occurs in the community has nothing to do with mental illness. Um, I completely disagree. 
I completely disagree. We have now generalized violence. It's no longer about gun violence. It's about community violence, which, by the way, I looked up. Community violence is defined as violence that happens between unrelated individuals who may or may not know each other and generally outside of the home. So let me play this out for you. You're driving down the road and you see that a car nearly hits a person. Uh, the person gets irate with them and starts verbally, uh, you know, assaulting them, the person that's driving, because it's like, how could you not see me? Blah, blah, blah. The person in the car decides to get out because they're just ticked and they get in a fight. Community violence. There's not a gun involved at all. They're just mad. They had a situation. They got mad. Did they react in a good and healthy way? No, I'm not suggesting that that's okay. And at the same time, that's community violence. That isn't gun violence. You know, uh, you're, 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 you know somebody's uh, walking down the street and they whistle at your girl. Uh, you say something to them, they come over being all bravado because they want to flirt with your girl. And next thing you know, you're like, you're throwing fists, both of you. Mutual combat. Is it illegal? Yes. Does it qualify as mutual violence? Yes. Is it gun violence? No. So we see these things come up where they change the argument. They change the discussion, but they don't tell you that. You have to have your thinking cap on going back to kindergarten. Put your thinking cap on because they're going to change the discussion on you. And you got to be careful because they won't tell you. They're just going to do it. So around 10 minutes and 40 seconds, they go into the similarities between mass shooters. This doctor quotes, she says, literally, social isolation. They've been bullied. They've harbored revenge fantasies. They have entitlement towards social standing, towards attention from women. They feel like they're not getting the popularity, attention, the recognition that they deserve, end quote. Okay, right here, I lose my junk. I'm sitting there listening. I, I was actually in my car listening at that time, and I lose my junk because what she just said has multiple mental health diagnoses, multiple, not just one, but there are multiple that are going to put me as a red flag when I hear those things, multiple. And she's like worried about, I don't know if I should admit that. I'm like, what the heck was she thinking? I mean, what the heck is she thinking? Look, I'm going I'm to just, I'm going to label a few of them for you. Let's start with the simple. That sounds like somebody who might've had a trauma. Now, not all traumas are big T traumas. Sometimes they can be little T traumas. And if you know mental health, you know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, you can go look it up. There's traumas that come on over time and they're, they seem more subtle. And then there's extreme traumas. Uh, my town was flooded and we all lost all of our properties. Um, our houses were, were all washed away. Big T trauma. Uh, got in a car accident and now I'm afraid to get behind the wheel. Big T trauma. Like the, the big ones are easy to see, but the subtle ones, 
the bullying, the social isolation. Those are harder to see. They take a trained mental health professional, not a medical professional. Why do you think medical professionals refer to mental health professionals when it becomes something like that? Because they can't medicate it, which she does get to later and I'll explain. But I digress. Let me go back. Oppositional defiance disorder. That's one. I even pulled out my trusty little DSM so that I could tell you a little bit about it. Uh, Angry or irritable mood, argumentative, defiant behavior, vindictiveness. Okay, I'm going possible red flag. That does that mean that that 21-year-old has ODD? Not necessarily, but you can't rule it out yet because they're showing some signs and symptoms. And so at worst, you put that in the rule out category, ruling out ODD. Then I go into the personality disorders because this is where it gets really interesting to me. I'm going, immediately going, antisocial personality disorder. That's a possibility. We've got somebody who's isolating, who's who's struggling with, uh, let me see what she said. Uh, Isolation, been bullied, they've harbored revenge fantasy, potential antisocial personality disorder. It's on page 659, uh, it goes F60.2, go ahead and look it up. You can do your own research. Don't trust me, don't trust them. Do your own work, okay? Page 667, histrionic personality. This could be somebody who wants attention. So they feel like they're not getting the popularity, attention, and recognition they deserve. Hello, histrionic. That's a possibility. And then I flip the page one more to 669 where I get narcissistic personality disorder. And in narcissistic personality disorder, they have a grandiose sense of self-importance. That's the very first thing. So I'm going, okay, well, there's four diagnoses plus potential for trauma. And she's worried that she may not be able to diagnose them with a mental illness? Does she not work from the same thing that I work from and that every other mental health professional in the in the country works from? By the way, the DSM is put together and it's put together by an entire group of really incredibly intelligent people who do not say go with the medical model. They say go with the mental health model, which I will get to in just a minute as well. So social isolation is a major indicator of mental illness, addiction, depression, ODD, anxiety, whatever. We can go on and on. I'm, I'm done with that. We're going to go into the next thing that they state. The next thing is around 11 minutes and 25 seconds. They say, quote, we do have medications for things like, and they proceed to say, you know, things that they have medication for. But what... <laughs> What they don't have medication for is resentment, hatred, anger at the world, uh, and so on and so on. Um, Okay, so let me just pause here and explain something for those of you who don't know. The medical model is totally different than the mental health model. They are not merged They do not often, well, they agree with each other on a lot of things, but then there's a lot of things they disagree with. And let's get right down to it. The medical model assumes a disease or a crisis. You don't go to the ER if something's not wrong and just go, hey, I just wanted to do a checkup. We don't do that. That's not the place to go for a checkup. You go there when something is wrong. So they assume there's a disease or a crisis going on. The mental health model does not assume crisis. 
They do not assume disease. We assume that a person is responding to the different variables in their life, whether that be environmental, their own internal mechanisms, their psychological, or in the more uh, you know difficult ones to identify, there's a cultural issue that's impacting them, which technically could fall under environmental as well. So for those of you who have followed me, we're talking about psychological, sociological, cultural. Okay. Mental health. There is an article I just want to highlight for a second. I found this article on, um, I just did an EBSCO uh, academic search premiere uh, search. And I found this article called Current Theoretical Models of Mental Health. And I want to highlight why the medical model and the mental health model look so different. The mental health model has six different viewpoints that they highlight. Let me, let me go over them. Mental health as above normal. I'm not going to get into details of all these. Mental health as maturity. Mental health as positive or spiritual emotions. Mental health as socio-emotional intelligence. Mental health as subjective well-being. Mental health as resilience. So those are different aspects to look at. Now, I want to I go back to this for a second, and I just want to point something out. Those do not assume disease. They do not assume disease. They assume that through a relationship, we can identify normal versus abnormal, mature versus immature, positive versus negative. It's a totally different model. So for those of you who want to know, uh, that article was dated April 1 of 2021. It was somebody who did research on the different models of mental health approaches. And you can go in and you can look it up yourself. It's not super hard to find. Again, the name, Current Theoretical Models of Mental Health. Look, you want to do the research, you can go find this. It's not going to be hard for you to find. Okay, so we're going to go get back on track. Uh, 11 minutes and 30 seconds in, She's talking about the medication for resentment, hatred, anger in the world. I'm going to introduce to, I got to look up her name again because I don't, I don't want to be disrespectful. Dr. Barnhorst. I want to introduce her to the medication for resentment, hatred, anger at the world because there is a medication for it. It's just not in your pillbox. The medication for it is relationships. That's when you refer them to a mental health professional who sits with them, does groups, individuals, couples, whatever, and gets to know the person. That is the pill. There isn't a physical pill you put in your mouth and you swallow and voila, you're sedated enough that you sound like you're mentally well. It's not like that. You have to sit and get to know a person. There has to be a development of a relationship. So just in case Dr. Barnhorst did not know, now she knows there is treatment for resentment, hatred, anger at the world. It's called a therapist, a mental health professional, uh, a LCSW that's well-trained, an LCPC that's well-trained, an LPC that's well-trained. There is help. At 12 minutes and 15 seconds into this discussion, the interviewer asks this question. What's going through your head as you make this decision whether or not to admit him? 
Her response is as follows, quote, So in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, this man, this young man, does not appear to be mentally ill to me. He does appear to be dangerous. Dilemma over. If you've been in mental health, dilemma over. If they are a danger to themselves or somebody else, for those who haven't listened to my ethics podcast that I did, go back and listen to it, please. It's good for everybody. When somebody is a danger to themselves or to somebody else, we have a responsibility as mental health professionals to break confidentiality. Why? Because we have a responsibility to protect the safety of the client or somebody they might hurt. We have a responsibility. It's non-negotiable. It's non-negotiable. We have to. And if we don't, we can lose our license. So just in case she's curious on this one, you know, the ethical principles that we abide by, autonomy, non-maleficence, beneficence, justice, fidelity, and veracity. It doesn't mean, oh, I like them. They didn't come in how I expected them to. And so therefore, I'm not going to protect the safety of them or somebody else. We don't get to do that. It doesn't matter how likable they are. Introduce here Ted Bundy. Doesn't matter how likable the guy is. He did a lot of bad things. And if we knew about it, we should have responded. And we did eventually. So that irritated me big time. Because a danger to self by death, like suicide, or danger to others, homicide, is criteria that is met, period, the end, conversation over. Until safety can be determined to be returned. So for instance, as I told you the criteria for the bed earlier, in the event that there's not a bed and they hold them in the hospital, which they sometimes will do, if they eventually appear to be safe to themselves and to others, they don't even go into the wing where they get evaluated again. Sometimes they'll send somebody over and do a quick evaluation going, oh yeah, now they seem safe. So obviously that emotion has subsided. Does that mean that they're going to be safe later on? Not necessarily, but we can't predict the future. So I I don't hold them for that. But they do get released then. And there's no record of mental illness. Okay, at 14 minutes and 15 seconds in, she finally gets to the point where she says she admits him. And then she talks about how the judge commits them if they're going to be committed. I'm going to outline this because most of you out there probably aren't familiar with this process. The mental health world as a mechanism, because we did over admit people. I told you a little bit about it back in the 60s, the 70s, like it was happening. And even before that. And since we basically abused our authority as a profession, uh, they put some uh, some pieces in play that allowed for others to check on what we're doing. I think that's wise because, you know, sometimes we miss stuff. I mean, like we're not perfect. So what she's talking about there is in the event that somebody gets admitted, it's usually 72 hours or less that they can be admitted. Unless a judge says you can keep holding them. A judge has to determine that they are committed. That means they have lost their autonomy. They are no longer able to be independent, out on their own, living their life because they are a danger to themselves or somebody else. So a judge comes in, checks out everything and says, 
you know, I, I think this person is, is worth the risk. I'm going to go ahead and release them. Or this person is potentially very dangerous and I am not going to release them. They are going to be committed and the mental health folks get in there, get to know them. Yes, sometimes in tandem with medication in the med- medical health world, um, oftentimes actually, because, you know, as much as I've, I've delineated between the medical health and the mental health, there's a ton of good collaboration that goes on. They're not going to talk about that in these podcasts probably, but there is a good amount of collaboration. When medical health and mental health collaborate, our success rate is so much better, so much better. So again, this is another layer of protection for autonomy. Autonomy, again, is an ethical principle. Um, and you guys, you would know what that is at this point if you've listened to me. 15 minutes and 10 seconds in, she says, quote, I'm willing to let them a little bit of freedom. I mean, obviously, it misspeaks a little bit in there, but but like, let them. I highlighted on let them. Uh, as if I get to take somebody's freedom from them? Nope. Uh, false. A 100% disagree. This is absurd to me. We don't allow them to be free. We are determining safety, not freedom. Once they are safe, they go. We are determining safety. That's it. Outside of that, we do not take away their autonomy. We do not have the right. We do not have the responsibility. So this this statement to me is just absurd, as if she gets to determine their freedom. I uh, No, thank you. So... That drove me nuts. Um, I did want to highlight this. Since I'm making a determination of safety within the law, I'm not allowed to illegally detain anyone. That's our determination. It's safety. Because otherwise, I'm illegally detaining them. And I would be potentially responsible for a civil or even potentially a criminal lawsuit. I'm allowed to legally detain anyone. Let me introduce you to something. I know that this is not used in our world very much anymore. But in America, we still have the right to do a citizen's arrest. Anybody who breaks the law can be arrested. Anybody. And they can be arrested by Schmo walking down the the street. We don't have to have a police officer there to arrest them. Now, am I suggesting that we all go out and buy handcuffs and tasers? No, please don't. Because, you know, that would potentially cause a lot more chaos. What I'm suggesting is that when we see a law broken, we can do more than just call 911. Yes, we should call 911 and get help on the way because they are trained to detain. But in light of a lot of places being far away from cops, look, there's a reason why citizens' arrests are still allowed. It's because sometimes the response time between the call and the arrival can cause more challenges. Um, insert here, mass shooters. The time, look, we know this. We've seen the, the, both the left and the right agree it took too long for them to act in Uvalde. So sometimes 
citizens have to act. Like that's, that could be our responsibility. And could it be dangerous? Yes. We have to weigh the risks. We have to decide if the risks are worth it to us and all of that stuff. But citizens' arrests are still legal. They're still legal. As far as I know, they're still legal in every state. Okay. At 16 minutes and 31 seconds in, there was a quote. This young man is not who the system was set up to help. She is working under the guise of mental health. They, they, the, the title of this thing is most violence is not caused by mental illness. She is introduced as a mental health professional. And she says, this young man is not who the system was set up to help. This is exactly the kind of person that our system is set up to help. Just not in the way that you want to. There's not a pill for it. We, mental health professionals, counselors, LCPCs, LCSWs, LPCs, we fill that gap, that exact gap that she said, this young man is not who the system was set up to help. That's false. That is so absolutely, insanely false. Like, she... she, if she is calling herself a mental health professional, she really needs to go back to her school and ask, why didn't you teach me that clinical work is designed to fill the gap of people who have resentments, people who have anger, people who are mad at the world? Why didn't you tell me that that was part of our role and responsibility? She, please, Dr. Barnhorst, go back and ask that question. Your professors failed you. I don't know where you went to school, but they failed you. This is not an accurate view of mental health. We are designed to fill this gap. Now, some professionals are going to fill it better than other professionals. Some have more experience. There's different approaches, and the different approaches can work better or worse for certain individuals. But this is the gap we fill. All right. Obviously, I lost it here because she's speaking of mental health and she's doing such a piss poor job. Uh, I really, I, I just lost my, my junk. Um, and that's when I decided that I'm going to do a podcast on this podcast and I'm going to go through it point by point and I'm going to offer up a little bit of uh, research and background and I'm going to offer the other point of view from an actual practicing mental health professional who's been doing this for a long time now. You, as the audience, have got to use your brains. I cannot implore you enough to actively listen, not passively listen to my podcast, to her podcast, to anybody's podcast. Actively participate in watching shows on TV. Actively. That means if you're not discussing the show with people, don't watch it. It's a waste of your time. We have to be active in our participation. Don't let labels like doctor convince you that somebody knows what they're doing. It's not a fact. Some doctors know what they're doing. Some doctors don't. Some clinicians know what they're doing. Some clinicians don't. Some, uh, if, if you're in surgery, I hope your surgeon has some experience. But think about this. Every surgeon starts with their first surgery. Somewhere along the line, they are in there doing when they don't have a lot of experience. 
So do your research, do the diligence of thinking on your own because not every doctor knows what they're doing. And Dr. Barnhorst here clearly does not understand the mental health process. She understands the hospital process and the hospital process is a medical process. And the medical process is they come in, we're assessing, do they have a disease? Are they in crisis? We treat. That's what she's doing. But that is not by any stretch of the imagination, the most significant part of the mental health world. It's going to be your private practitioners in offices, your residential treatments of outpatient long-term care. It's going to be, um, you know, your little community agencies that have, uh, you know, 10 therapists in there and they got clients rolling in all day, every day where the mental health professional sit is in a seat across from a client. That's what we do. So we absolutely fill that gap. She doesn't think that we fill. Not only that, I want to point out something. She doesn't point to any research on any of this, nor does the interviewer. What she states is all anecdotal. That means it's a story. I mean, I love a story. I mean, I'm a therapist. I hope I like stories at least some of the time. Like a great story. But if you follow the flow of thought, it breaks down super fast. It's a narrative that flows and it seemingly flows okay. But when they change terminology on you, when they morph meanings or when they misrepresent gaps like mental health, it becomes a problem. And in this, it became a huge, huge problem. So for just just for, for giggles in this one, uh, look, I, I, I want to tell you what I think as a a mental health professional, based on what she described, what would I do with this person? Um, this person who was a danger to someone else, clearly that I got to protect those that cannot protect themselves. I have a responsibility to that. Um, should I should I detain them? Should I admit them? If I were in that decision process, I gotta t- I'm going to tell you how I would go about this. The first thing is we go to the lowest level possible. Whenever we're taking away someone's autonomy, we don't jump straight to the most extreme. We go the lowest level possible. Well, what could we do? I could tell you know a family member saying, "Hey, they're a bit of a danger potentially. Um, can we is can one of you ensure that they don't have access to um, you know any kind of guns or anything like that? You know, maybe this kid had a brother or something like. This is what a mental health professional w- would be doing. I would be doing this. I would be asking who in your family is a good support for you, and I would talk to them. I know that's a lot of work." And Dr. Barnhorst probably doesn't want to do that work because she's busy. I get it. But if I do that work and I find that we can get the supports around them to help them on their path, I don't have to detain them. I don't have to admit them at all. I could potentially say, okay, good. I'll give you, you know, can you get them out of there if there's any guns? Can you get them out within the next, you know, four hours? Great. And can they come and stay with you so that they have somebody to talk to 24-7? And they're like, yeah, of course. This is the recommendation of the mental health world. This is what we would do. Great. So now they're going to stay with so-and-so. The guns have been removed, if there were any. And 
they immediately get a referral to a mental health professional in an office, outpatient. That's the lowest level care. So now we've set up good systems around them for support. And that way, look, what that does is this. Should this individual leave and they go gun seeking right away, we're going to get a police report right away. Why? Because now if they screw up on their end, that could happen. I get that. And do you want to, you want to, you want to trust a professional or do you want to trust, you know, their brother or their mother or like, guess what though? We have to trust somebody along the way. And if we have an early alert system, because we've put supports around them, then we are going to prevent the problem more likely than not. Oh yeah. My, my brother was, I was driving with my brother. We went down to uh, the local Qdoba and he got out of the car and immediately started going over to the gun, uh, the gun store. And, you know, so the the guy gets on the phone, Hey, nine one one. Yes, I've got to report this. So-and-so was in the hospital and guess what? We avert the issue. The police show up to the gun store and say, do not sell this guy a gun and, you know, issue averted right? Like we do it to the lowest level possible. So in my world, I think it's unlikely that I would have tried to, as Dr. Barnhorst suggested, she said, it's unlikely we'd be able to fix them since I'm not interested in fixing them as a mental health professional, because I'm not assuming they're broken. I'm assuming they're responding to their environment, their psychological state or something that's going on right? I'm assuming that they're actually functioning in a relatively normal way until I find out otherwise. And if we can take away those potential triggers, those issues, then they, they have a potential of being high functioning in their regular environment. That's my assumption as a mental health person. She's assuming that she's there to fix people. So what I would suggest is the lowest level of care possible. Could I solve this problem without hospitalization? How would I solve this problem without hospitalization? I offered one solution. There's probably 10,000 other possibilities. Um, you know, I, I would say to any mental health professional out there, explore the different options that you would have if you run into this situation because you will run into this situation. I've been in the field for a while. I've been doing this work and I'm telling you it's coming your way if it hasn't already. Be prepared to manage it and be prepared to manage it in a way that is relational because the doctors, the apparently the PsyDs, psychiatrists in some cases are not going to use our mental health model. They're going to use the medical model, which by the way, sometimes is not in the client's best interest. Many times it is. I'm not, I'm not saying never, but we've got to be careful because when we get to that point, we are now treating it as crisis. It is officially crisis care, which means uh, we're going to have to answer those questions of what's the lowest level of care possible that this person could be in. And if that means it's hospital, then that means it's hospital. All right. Thank you so much for joining me and have a great day.